Ecclesiastes chapter 6. There is an evil which I have seen under the sun, and it is prevalent among men. A man to whom God gives riches and wealth and honor, so that his soul lacks nothing of all that he desires. Yet God does not empower him to eat from them, for a foreigner eats from them. This is vanity and a sickening evil. If a man becomes a father of 100 children and lives many years, however many the days of his years may be, but his soul is not satisfied with good things, and he does not even have a proper burial, then I say, better the miscarriage than he. For that one comes in vanity and goes into darkness, and that one's name is covered in darkness. Indeed, that one never sees the sun and never knows anything. That one has more rest than he. Even if the other man lives 1,000 years twice and does not see good things, do not all go to the same place? All a man's labor is for his mouth, and yet the soul is not fulfilled. For what advantage does the wise man have over the fool? What advantage does the afflicted man have knowing how to walk before the living? What the eyes see is better than what the soul goes after. This too is vanity and striving after wind. Whatever exists has already been named, and it is known what man is, and he cannot dispute with him who is stronger than he is. For there are many words which increase vanity. What then is the advantage to a man? For who knows what is good for a man during his lifetime, during the few days of his vain life? He will make do with them like a shadow. For who can tell a man what will be after him under the sun? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we look at these words, as we look at this portion of Solomon's writings, help us to consider these truths, help us to understand them, help us to glean principles of life under the sun, help us to apply them to our own lives, that we may live in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called that we may be pleasing to you. And please guide me as I preach your words, that your words would go forth in power and precision, impact the hearts and minds of your people for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. As we come to um, this chapter, it's just about the, the almost the exact middle of Solomon's uh, writings, his book, this book of Ecclesiastes, which is, in a sense... Um, his repentance, um, it's his reflection upon life, uh, more uh, along the lines of, of um, just a compilation of his investigations into life itself and the meaning and purpose of life and um, most importantly, where and how mankind can find fulfillment in this life. Uh, we, we know the, the history of Solomon and, and uh the, the great wisdom that God had given him, but also with that wisdom, great blessing. And yet, in spite of his great wisdom and his great blessing, he, he squandered um, much of it um, by living contrary to you know, much of the wisdom God had given him, uh, living contrary to God's law. He started out great, and um, in the beginning of, of his reign... Um, we can see, in, in, in essence, uh, you know, Israel's golden years. Uh, First Kings uh, chapter 8 to 
um, chapter, about chapter, end of chapter 9. And these are the golden years of, of Israel's uh, uh, history. Um, and Solomon started out well, um, but then he quickly strayed, um, because, partly because of all the riches and wealth and honor that came to him, the, the influence, the power, uh, the prestige, and, and then... Um, you know, the politics of that day and age. Uh, um, he gathered more and more uh, uh, horses and chariots and built up cities. And, and then with that, the foreign wives who, um, as we read, had turned his, his heart away. And uh, so we come to this book, which uh, many scholars uh, believe. And just in reading it and reading all of Solomon's writings, uh, Proverbs, Song of Solomon, and the couple psalms that he wrote, we can see that this is um, an old man's reflections upon life. And as I, I and many others have looked at this, and, and we see it as his repentance. He repents from um, using his wisdom uh, for himself. But nonetheless, he goes through this book and he um, compiles his investigations into life and, and using his wisdom to figure out what is best for man. And he comes to this middle, and th this is probably one of the darker chapters. I mean, much of Ecclesiastes is dark and it, it's depressing, and it, it almost leads you to despair, which I, I believe that that is part of Solomon's intent to lead you to despair over finding um, hope in the things of this world, finding fulfillment in the things of this world, finding um, pleasure or joy or comfort in anything apart from God. I think that, that's the tension of Ecclesiastes is, is to bring you to that point to recognize that, that nothing in this life can, can completely fulfill you. It's all temporary pleasures. And yes, m many of those pleasures are from the hand of God. Many of the things we enjoy in this life are, are gifts of God. But if we um, place all our hope and all our joy in those things, they're, they're, it's like drinking salt water. It just makes us thirstier and thirstier. Um, and in this passage, he, he um, in a sense, it, he, he gives us some object lessons. Um, he... He shows us some illustrations about uh, certain men and, and, and the lives they live. And, and it's, it's almost as if Solomon is giving us three admonitions here concerning life by way of illustration. He, he's using these, these uh, men or men in general um, as object lessons. Object lessons as to how we can waste our lives in this world. And so I, I titled this message, How to Waste Your Life, because this is, in a sense, what Solomon is showing us by, by these illustrations, these pictures, how we can waste our life. And, and the first way, the first lesson in which we can waste our life is don't enjoy God's gracious gifts. Don't enjoy his, his gifts. And he, he paints this first lesson, this first picture with these few men or, or maybe one man. He says in verses 1 to 6, There is an evil which I have seen under the sun, and it is prevalent among men. Prevalent among men. It's interesting. It's, it's a prevalent thing. It, it happens all the time. 
And he goes on, he says, A man to whom God gives riches and wealth and honor, so that his soul lacks nothing of all that he desires. Yet, God does not empower him to eat from them, for a foreigner eats from them. This is vanity and a sickening evil. If a man becomes the father of 100 children and lives many years, however many the days of his years may be, but his soul is not satisfied with good things, and he does not even have a proper burial, then I say, better the miscarriage than he. For that one comes in vanity and goes into darkness, and that one's name is covered in darkness. Indeed, that one never sees the sun and never knows anything. That one has more rest than he. Even if the other man lives 1,000 years twice and does not see good things, do not all go to the same place? And the lesson he is painting for us here is, is of the, the man or the person who has um, blessings but doesn't enjoy them. And so the first lesson in how to waste our life is, is don't enjoy God's gracious gifts. Just pile them up. And there's, there's a few ways we, we don't enjoy God's gracious gifts. And first, don't rest. Don't rest or, or, or take time to enjoy what you have. You know, just continue to build up things as if, as if more will bless you. Or, or, or once, once I get to a certain place, once my bank account reaches a, a certain number, or, or, or once I buy that house or, or you know, buy certain things, certain toys, and then I'll enjoy them, or then I'll take a break, then I'll rest. And, and you always need one more thing. This is a, the, the picture of the person who works long hours, who, who won't take a day off or won't take a vacation. They, they, they continue to build up that, that time or that money. And, and um, some of you, you, you may know people in your workplace or have heard of people. Who, you know, I, I, I've known people in a, a few places where I have worked where their vacation, they're just building up vacation time until the boss has to almost force them like, hey, you need to take a vacation or else you'll lose this time. Or, or they, they see how they're just a workaholic and they're like, you, not, not only will you lose your time, but you need to take a vacation. This is not your life. What are you, what are you working for? What are you living for? But it's not just the, the employee, but you know, we see this most often and Solomon alludes to this more of those who have riches. This is a successful businessman or entrepreneur who can't bring himself to take a vacation once in a while for fear that everything will fall apart when they're gone. I can't take a day. I can't take a vacation. The business will tank. Or, or you know, day traders. I've I've heard this. This is prevalent amongst day traders, people who play the stock market. And they, they become successful in it. And especially in this day and age where everything can be done on your phone. And there's apps where they can just, they don't even need a computer. They, they rarely even need to call anybody. They can do day trading on their phone. And they're just tied to their phone. The first thing they do when they wake up and they're watching this. And they're successful. But it becomes so addictive. I've heard stories of these people who, they'll go, They'll go on dream vacations and then they'll stay in the resort and looking at their phone because they can't, they can't let it go. And, and this is, in a sense, what, what Solomon points to in, in uh, 
verse 2, he says, A man to whom God gives riches and wealth and honor, so that his soul lacks nothing of all that he desires. Yet God does not empower him to eat from them. For a foreigner eats from them. This is vanity and a sickening evil. And there's, there's somewhat of a conundrum here. Because if you look back to um, verse 18 um, in chapter 5, he says this. Solomon, he, you know, he, he says this concluding that chapter. He says, here's what I have seen to be good, which is beautiful to eat to drink and to see good in all one's labor in which he labors under his son during the few days of his life, which God has given him, for this is his portion. Furthermore, as for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth, he has also empowered him to eat from them and to take up his portion and be glad in his labor. This is the gift of God. And there's many commentators who look at these verses and, and they see somewhat of a, a bit of an oxymoron because in verse 19 of chapter 5, he says that God has empowered him to eat from them and to take up his portion and be glad in his labor. This is the gift of God. But then just a few verses later, it's in chapter 6, verse 2, it says, A man to whom God gives riches and wealth and honor so that his soul lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God does not empower him to eat from them. So the conundrum here is this, the oxymoron is this, why, why it seems as if God is empowering one to enjoy the riches and the wealth and, and to be glad in his labor as the gift of God, and yet he does not empower this other one to eat from them. And part of it is in chapter 5, I believe that he the man has the attitude, the right attitude to see God's gifts, to see God's blessing and has the right attitude towards them that he enjoys them, that they come from God and, and he's blessed by them. He's glad in his labor. He sees the fruits of his labor. But then this other person in chapter 6, first off, he doesn't have the right attitude. He, he, he's worried, he's fearful um, that they might be taken away. And so he has to build up more and more, and, and he's worried about securing what he has built up. But there's also a sense that um, God has um, created such circumstances in this rich man's life that um, it, whether through war or um, famine or just some other calamity, that the rich man is not able to enjoy his riches. And, and maybe it's because the rich man... <clears throat> The rich man never enjoyed it to begin with, so God takes it away. <coughs> it's, it's almost as if um, the lesson that God is trying to teach to this man is that riches, wealth, honor, it's fleeting in this life. So if you don't enjoy it while you have it, then, then what good is it for me to give it to you? I'll just take it away. And it's, it's, it's a lesson we hear um, in different parts of Scripture that, that money can grow wings and fly away, so to speak. That at any point in time, doesn't matter how much you have, at any point in time it can be taken away through war. It can be taken away through your business failing. It can be taken away through a lawsuit. It can be taken away through... Um, just an accident and loss of your own health and, and then so that you have to spend all your money on your health or, or you just can't 
can't enjoy it. So while you have it, you ought to enjoy it. You ought to see it as a, as a gift of God. You know, take time to rest. Take time to enjoy what God has given you. <coughs> the, and, and, you know, there's a great reminder here. Solomon himself, in one of the Psalms he wrote, Psalm 127, Unless Yahweh builds a house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless Yahweh watches the city, the watchman keeps awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early, that you sit out late, O you who eat the bread of painful labors. For in this manner he gives sleep to his beloved. Behold, children are an inheritance of Yahweh. The fruit of the womb is a reward. And so there's this balance. We are to live a balanced life of work and rest. And we are to enjoy God's good gifts. We are to see that they are gifts from his hands. I, I, you know, recently in studying this, I, I, and this wasn't even in relation to this uh, book, but I came across a quote, and it convicted me. And someone said, you know, in 20 years, the only people who will remember that you worked late will be your spouse and your children. That's, that's right, because the people at work, they won't, they won't care. I mean, they might remember you. I mean, your neighbors, everybody else, but it'll really impact your family. So, you know, the first way, uh, part of not enjoying God's gracious gifts is don't rest or take time to enjoy what you have. Second, don't acknowledge or take advantage of the seasons of life. You know, there, there's seasons of life. It's not just this work-rest balance that, that we, we think of, you know, in our day and age, we, the, the typical, we have the typical work week, uh, 40, 50, 60 hours on average, you know, and, and then we have a weekend off. And that's a typical, you know, routine. Uh, some people only get a day off or, you know, some people work in such a way that they, they have four days of work and three days off. Uh, but whatever the case, it it's generally falls in that pattern. But it's not just that, that day-to-day, week-to-week pattern of having that work-rest balance, but there's also seasons of life. There's seasons of life, uh, you know, in, in which we are either to work harder or take more rest. You think of, you know, the, the young single professional, you know, and, and, and many, many young people in, in their teens and 20s and even early 30s, um, some, some of them, and especially in our day and age, they, they, they take too much time off. They rest too much. When that should be the time, that should be the season of life for a young single person to work hard and to work more. But then there's also this season of life like a, a, a young family man. And sometimes a, a young family man, or, or um, they can um, spend too much time at work trying to advance their career when they should you know, take advantage of that time to spend more time with family. Or um, those who... Maybe um, they work too late in life. And yes, we're supposed to work, but there comes a time when we also need to wind down or rest and, and know when to, when to call it quits, when to retire, and, and maybe get a part-time job. You know, there's seasons of life that we are to rest and take time to enjoy what we have, and there's those seasons of life when we need to work hard. 
You know, one of the ways, the main ways we can waste our life is not to enjoy God's gracious gifts, not to take rest, not to um, take time to enjoy what we have, not to um, acknowledge the, the seasons of life. Well, also, not, don't be content with what you have. So another way to not enjoy God's gracious gifts is, is don't be content. Be, be dissatisfied with everything, and whether it's in your home, your work, your income, your relationships. Just always be um, complaining and be consumed with always trying to make everything better or, or be cynical and complain about how things should be better. You know, this is, this is kind of part of the picture of what Solomon um, paints here. Because he talks about the man to whom God gives riches and wealth and honor, but that he, 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 can't, he can't eat from he can't enjoy them. Another eats from them. But then he goes on in, in verse 3, he says, If a man becomes the father of 100 children, lives many years, however the, many the days of his years may be, but his soul is not satisfied with good things, and he does not even have a proper burial, then I say better the miscarriage than he. Better the one that never sees the light of day than, than this man who um, we see this many riches, many years, many children, but he doesn't enjoy them. He has, he has everything. He has a, an abundance of everything. He has longevity, prosperity. Um, he has uh, uh, progeny. But he doesn't even enjoy them. And it's, he almost caps it off here um, at the end of verse 3. He says he doesn't even have a proper burial. This man with, with many children, with, with many riches, with many years, he doesn't even have a proper burial. And, and in the, the Hebrew mindset, and even in our day and age, this is a person that no one comes to the funeral. And, and even though he has many children, they don't care about him. All he did is he, he worked his whole life. He, he didn't spend time with family. He didn't uh, cultivate relationships. He, he didn't uh, take advantage of the good things. He didn't enjoy the good things of life. He's, in a sense, you know, we, Ebenezer Scrooge, <laughs> you know? And, and so no one even wants to honor him in his death. It, it's, a, it's a tragic ending to life. And in the Hebrew mindset, a burial, that was the capstone to one's life. And that's still in our day and age. You see people, um, people who are great in our day and age, they're honored. And yes, it's true that, that sometimes, you know, some people that are honorable still end up having a small funeral just because they have a small family or just the nature of their death. But nonetheless, um, generally speaking, a person who lives a good life has a proper burial. They have people that come to honor them because of the impact that they have, have had. Another way we, we don't enjoy God's gracious gifts is, is don't, don't thank God for what he has given you. Don't thank God for what he has given you. And don't accept or acknowledge that everything you have comes from God. Everything you have comes from God. Um, you know, I, I remember uh, when I was in seminary, when I first started, um, one of my classmates, he went home, um, <clears throat> and he had this, this very successful grandfather, 
And he goes home for Thanksgiving, and since this, this friend of mine, he was a seminary student, they ask him to give the blessing. And he gives the blessing for the meal, and he's going on and on and on, elaborating, thanking God for all these things, and, and his successful, unbelieving grandfather, who's pretty much built his whole life and considers himself a self-made man, is, is almost getting frustrated, and it's getting short, and he starts to make comments and makes comments afterwards, and it, it was convicting him and, and confronting his own pride because he couldn't thank God for all the things that he is, he's been given. He, he sees all the gifts, everything that he's been given as coming from his own hand. This is what I did. This is what I made. This is what I accomplished. Uh, look what I became. I, I'm a self-made man. No one's a self-made man. That's an oxymoron. God has created us. God has gifted us with life. And he's given us everything in our lives. We, we can waste our life by, by not thanking God for what he has given us. But there's also a sense of you know, not being thankful. It's not just about the things we have or the things we've accomplished. But... Um, the things we, we do, maintaining that, that attitude that if, if we don't do it, it won't be done right. Everything depends upon us. Everything depends upon us. That's how we waste our lives. It's, it's all about us. Um, everything we have is, is a result of us, and, 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 and we can't rest or else we'll lose it. We, we're, we're discontent because we need more. We can't thank God because we think that we have uh, brought it to ourselves. Dr. William Barrick, in his, his uh, commentary, he says this concerning this passage. He says, the truth of the matter according to William Brown, involves the fact that ownership is thus a misnomer. One's possessions are exclusively gifts of God. And as easily as God gives, so God takes away to give to others. The givenness of material possessions is a two-edged sword. In other words, there are no guarantees in life when it comes to one's possessions and wealth. There's no guarantees. It can easily easily be taken away at any moment. And so while you have it, you are to enjoy it and be thankful. Thank God. As I've been going through Ecclesiastes, I can't help but continue to think about Job. And just as Dr. Barrett commented on that, and I read these verses, I think of Job's response, his famous response, which songs have been written about this, as as uh, Satan strikes him and, and takes away everything he had. In Job 1, chapter 1, verse 20, it says that Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head, and he fell to the ground and worshipped. He said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. Yahweh gave, and Yahweh has taken away. Blessed be the name of Yahweh. The Lord gives, and the Lord takes away. And that's to be our view. And if, if he's given us stuff, we're to enjoy it. And if he takes it away, that's his prerogative. We're not to complain about it. Naked we came and naked we will go. It's all a gift from beginning to end. <coughs> One commentator, he wrote on this passage that the Lord gives and takes away for his own purposes. So the blessings of God cannot be assumed or taken for granted but they should be enjoyed with thankfulness while they are available. 
They're to be enjoyed with thankfulness while they're available. And so we see the, the first way to waste your life, which we learned from this chapter, is don't enjoy God's gracious gifts. And the second lesson we learn in how to waste your life is don't acknowledge God as the creator. Don't acknowledge God as the creator. Verses 7 to 9. All a man's labor is for his mouth, and yet the soul is not fulfilled. For what advantage does the wise man have over the fool? What advantage does the afflicted man have, knowing how to walk before the living? What the eyes see is better than what the soul goes after. This too is vanity and striving after wind. This, this here, these few, few verses right here, this is a picture of the discontent and disillusioned attempting to find fulfillment in the things of this world through their own power and wisdom apart from God. It is, all man's labor is for his mouth, and yet the soul is not fulfilled. He's, he's working for the, the physical things, the earthly things. He, he doesn't, in a sense, concern himself with higher things of the soul. Or, or the, better yet, you know, his, his heart is fixed on all the things of this world, and yet he's not fulfilled. And what advantage does a wise man have over the fool? Because they, they all end up in the same place. What advantage does the afflicted man have, or, or many translations would say poor man, knowing how to walk before the living? What the eyes see is better than what the soul goes after. It, it means uh, what is concrete and real um, in this life. It, it, it's better than the, the fantasies or, or, or the longings of something better. This is a person that doesn't acknowledge God as the creator, that God has ordained their lives and, and their hope and their joy and the fulfillment should be in God. And, and, and there's a few ways we don't acknowledge God as the creator. You know, most people believe in God. Um, most uh, believers would acknowledge, say they acknowledge God as the creator in their day-to-day -day lives, but there's a few ways we don't acknowledge God as the creator and that we first don't acknowledge his sovereignty and his power. We don't acknowledge his sovereignty and his power that he has ultimate control over every element, every being, every action, every circumstance, and every moment. He has ultimate control over everything. And, and yes, we, we do make decisions, we do plan, we are responsible for our actions, we are called to do His will, but He has ultimate control. And, and He has ordained our lives, He has, he has uh, uh, placed the boundaries on us and where we go. He, he um, interjects into our lives at times, He directs us, He guides us according to uh, His will. But the person that doesn't acknowledge God as the creator doesn't acknowledge his sovereignty over everything. They don't acknowledge that his power, that he has the power to create, to control, to change and destroy as he wills. And even though he is completely sovereign and powerful, he still holds us responsible to do his will. And so there's this, this tension between divine sovereignty and human responsibility. But we all have to acknowledge God as the creator, that he has created us and placed us in these 
particular circumstances in our lives, and we are to uh, do His will. We are to uh, we are to strive to be pleasing to Him. We are to understand that we are accountable to Him, and not to live uh, as if we are our own Creator. We are our own Maker. Person that doesn't acknowledge God as uh, their creator, doesn't acknowledge his sovereignty and power. They also don't acknowledge his providence and wisdom that he has designed and ordered his creation to fulfill his purposes. We, we, we aren't here to you know, have our best life now or, or to live according to however we please. But he, we have a creator and has designed us and created us for his purposes to fulfill his purposes, that's the meaning of our lives. That's the conclusion of God's of um, <clears throat> of Solomon's uh, writings here in Ecclesiastes. That that <clears throat> the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep His commandments. That's how we are to live. That's how we are not to waste our lives by acknowledging that we have a Creator, that there is a purpose. That he is in control. He is sovereign. He is powerful. He does order things uh, providentially according to his plan, according to his wisdom. He has designed and ordered our life for his glory and for our own good. But there's a, a third way people don't acknowledge God as a creator, not just in uh, uh, refusing to acknowledge his sovereignty and power or his providence and wisdom, but also refusing to acknowledge his justice and his righteousness. Yeah, that there are, um, God is just, he's holy, he will hold us accountable. There's a right and wrong in this world. There's a right and wrong way to live and to do things and, and to make decisions. That we are moral creatures and moral beings. God does not change. He is perfectly just and righteous. We are to submit to him. We are to trust him. We are to hope in him. <clears throat> you know, you think of people that they, 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 they think they're the captain of their own ship. That they're the determiner of their own destiny. And they continue to live this way, and they're, they, they're never completely fulfilled. And at certain points in their lives, they come into the roadblocks or the obstacles of, of trying to get everything they want. And usually it comes down to uh, God's laws or his morality. Um, and they, they can't get everything they, they want, and they get frustrated, and they can't um, just do whatever they want. <clears throat> And I remember um, one preacher talking about this um, in, in the context of evangelism. Is he, is he kind of trying to uh, evangelize the lost and, and tell them that there is a, a God and there is a divine lawgiver and he holds us accountable and, and people coming up with all sorts of excuses and, and this preacher saying, hey, listen, this is God's universe. If you don't like it, make your own. Go make your own. But fulfillment in life is found first by, by acknowledging God as the creator. That this is not our world. We, we are not our own. We did not create our own. 
Dr. William Barrick, once again, his commentary on this passage, he writes this, Mere moral beings who conduct their lives without God in this life will face enigmas seemingly without solution. And an individual who lives by faith in the creator and sovereign of all things may experience the same enigmas, but God's sovereign control provides the means for enjoying his gifts in spite of the difficulties and discouragements. And this is, in a sense, what, what Solomon is, is painting this, this picture of the, the, the person who's striving and striving for fulfillment. They're not fulfilled. Their desires are not fulfilled because they're, <clears throat> they're not submitting to God's sovereignty. They're, they're not acknowledging God as the creator. And, and those who do, as, as uh, Dr. Barrick said in his commentary, like us, we still experience the same trials and challenges in lives, in our lives, as, as those who don't acknowledge God. But in acknowledging God and in submitting to his sovereignty, um, we have peace of mind. We know that someone's in control. We know that there is a higher purpose, that, that, that there is a reason for the way things are. There's a reason why things uh, go a certain way, why this, order, this world um, functions a certain way. And so Solomon is teaching us how not to waste our life in, in these, these illustrations. First, don't enjoy God's gracious gifts. Second, don't acknowledge God as a creator. And the third lesson, <clears throat> don't submit to God as his creation. Don't submit to God as his creation, verses 10 to 12. Whatever exists has already been named. and has known what man is, and he cannot dispute with him who is stronger than he is. For there are many words which increase vanity. What then is the advantage to a man? For who knows what is good for a man during his lifetime, during the few days of his vain life? He will make do with them like a shadow. For who can tell a man what will be after him under the sun? It starts off in verse 10. Whatever, whatever exists has already been named. It's already been determined. It's already been defined. And this is why Solomon, in a sense, why we can elude um, uh, uh, or, or, or extrapolate from these few verses this lesson. Don't submit to God as his creation because the man, in, in essence, or a person that Solomon is alluding to is one that's trying to define uh, reality for themselves. Solomon says, whatever exists has already been named. It's already been defined. It's already been laid out. It's already been given a purpose and a function. And there's four ways we don't submit to God as his creation. This is true for believers as unbelievers. We, we don't fully uh, submit to God. There's, it, it's interesting. Um, when I was in seminary, um, there's... Uh, <clears throat> One of my professors said, said, you know, there's a lot of heresy in the church comes through our songs and our hymns. And not just heresy, but sometimes things that they just aren't true. And there's some songs we sing that um, aren't true completely. And he uses a, 
an illustration. One, one such, such song that's popular is, is that, that hymn, I Surrender All. And if you really, really think about that, is there anyone that can honestly say that? That they surrender all their thoughts, all their desires, all their actions, all their words, everything to God. And they do whatever he asks. And, and there's not one of us that submits completely to God and his laws. We're, we're, we're sinners. There, there's still uh, pockets of resistance, so to speak, within our hearts and minds. But this is especially true for unbelievers. We waste our lives by not submitting to God and his creation as his, as his creation. And the first way we do that is we, we don't fear him. We don't fear him. We don't acknowledge him. We, we, we live as if, if we are our own creator and sovereign. As if we are the determiner of our own fate. Solomon wrote in, in you know, the whole book of Proverbs, he writes as almost like a catechism for young men and women. And especially for his, his sons, for those who would be um, groomed and trained to be leaders in the government. And he begins that, that, that book, um, one of the first lessons in Proverbs is the fear of Yahweh is the beginning of knowledge. Ignorant fools despise wisdom and discipline. All wisdom, all knowledge starts with the fear of the Lord, understanding that you have a creator, you have a God, and you are to submit to him as his creation. You are to fear him. You are to acknowledge your own creatureliness. And this is, this is, in a sense, what Solomon is getting at here in verse 10 of chapter 6. Whatever exists has already been named. It's already been named, and it is known what man is, and he cannot dispute with him who is stronger than he is. The, the, the picture here is, is of man, in a sense, redefining himself and redefining his reality and, and, and everything around him. And, and he's saying, you can't dispute with him who is stronger than, than, than he, than God. Man cannot dispute with God. The, this concept of naming, the, the, this goes back to the creation because the first thing that, that, that God had created, designed Adam to do was to name the beasts of the field. It's in Genesis 2. Out of the ground, Yahweh God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and he brought each to the man to see what he would call it and whatever the man called a living creature that was its name and there's a sense that that uh, <clears throat> Adam was as we read Adam and Eve were made in the likeness of God in his image and there's a sense which theologians call um, uh, this this concept of, of Adam being created his purpose as God's vice regent or his his um, ambassador, so to speak, on earth, his image, his likeness. He was, um, in a sense, uh, supposed to do certain things which God does. And he, he, um, part of that was naming, defining the, the animals. You will be this, you will be that. And what is going on here in verse 10 of chapter 6 is that, that the man is trying to name everything, even himself, He's, he's, in a sense, going outside his boundaries. And Solomon says, whatever exists has already been named. 
One commentator writes, he says, to name something is to exercise authority over it. The preacher thus confesses that God rules over all things, and he points out that it would be foolish for mankind to dispute with God's sovereign ordering of the world. To do so would only produce more words and more vanity. In a sense, he's saying, saying mankind, man needs to stay in his lane, stay in his role. That there's, there's certain things God has designed us to do and certain parameters he has given us to live in and to exist in. And we are to remain in those parameters in those areas and not to um, try to redefine uh, reality. As if we, we, we see, you know, in our day and age that a man can become a woman, a boy can be a girl or whatever. Um, at the core of that, it's not just sexual immorality. At the core of that is redefining one's own nature, redefining reality as it is, making, one, um, making oneself God, in a sense. As many uh, preachers have said, in the beginning God created man in his own image, and ever since man has been trying to return the favor. Redefine God, and, and, and not just recreating and redefining God as we see all the false religions do, but, but also in recreating and redefining his creation so that we can live however we want. We can do whatever we want. But that doesn't last long because sooner or later, creation slaps us in the face. Reality slaps us in the face and says, no, you, you can't do whatever you want. There's a such thing as gravity. There's a such thing as biology. There, there's, there's an order in which things work. And we are to submit to God as his creation. We are to fear him. But we're also to obey him. This is the second part of not submitting to God as his creation is not only don't fear him, but don't obey him. Don't obey him. Don't obey his laws, his rules, the, what he has laid out, the, the moral law that which he has written on every person's heart. And third, don't trust him because if, if we don't fear him, we won't obey him. And if we don't obey him, we won't trust him either. He says, he says here in verse 12, For who knows what is good for a man during his lifetime? Who knows? This is a picture of, of, of the man, you know, the person striving against God, striving against his created order. He says in verse 10, Whatever exists has already been named and is known what man is, and he cannot dispute with him who is stronger than he is. For there are many words which increase vanity, what then is the advantage to a man? For who knows what is good for a man during his lifetime, during the few days of his vain life? Who knows? Who knows? And the one who knows is what is good for man is the one who has created man. That's the one who knows. That's what Solomon is, in a sense, pointing us to. He's pointing us back to God. He's the one who knows what is good. He's, he's the one who knows what is good for man during his lifetime, during the few days of his vain life. The one, this is the one who knows all things. It's the one who knows uh, the purpose for which we are created. We are to submit to him and submit to his designs. It's interesting that, that Solomon says, 
for who knows. And, and it's not just what, uh, concerning what man's uh, uh, purpose and design it here is uh, in, in this world, but, but more uh, ultimate eternal designs, spiritual things, not just physical things, but spiritual things. This, you know, as I read this, this reminded me of Jesus' rebuke to Nicodemus. As Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night, and he knows, he comes to him at night for fear of, most likely for fear of his fellow Jewish priests and scribes and leaders. He doesn't want to be ashamed. He wants to maintain some sort of reputation. Yet he knows that there's something about this man, Jesus. There's miracles. There's, there's, people are following him. And so he comes to him at night, and he, he asks him, to ask him some questions, and Jesus gets right to the chase, starts to tell him about the kingdom of God and what it is to come into the kingdom. He tells him that you must be born again, that the Spirit blows wherever it wishes. You, you do not see it, but you, you hear it and you see the effects of it. He so said, this is, this is what it means to come into the kingdom. And then he, he says this in, in John 3, and verse 11 to 13, because Nicodemus isn't really grasping. And he says, truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness of what we have seen, and you do not accept our witness. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? And then he says this, no one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Right there in verse 13, he, he's in a sense getting to what Solomon is, is, is the, the question Solomon is posing in, in verse 12 of chapter 6. Who knows? Who knows what is good for a man? And Jesus is saying, in a sense, to Nicodemus, who knows? Who knows about these spiritual things? Who gets to heaven? And I'll tell you who knows. The one, one who has descended from heaven, the Son of Man. I know. So listen to me. I'm telling you what is true, how someone enters the kingdom of God. And it is essentially also, we hear the same thing in the transfiguration. As, as uh, Jesus goes up to the, the mountain in Matthew chapter 17, and, and he takes with him um, uh, Peter, and, and, and uh, he takes with him um, Peter and, and John, and uh, <clears throat> he goes up there. And, and, and uh, we see him transfigured. And Peter, as always, he sticks his foot in his mouth and he says, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three booths here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. And what he's talking about, the three booths, the three tents, the three tabernacles. What he's getting at is he, he sees this, this vision of God and of Jesus and him revealing his glory and, and he's thinking in terms of worship and so he's thinking in terms of the Old Testament form of worship. I'll make a tabernacle for all three of you and then we'll worship here because I see God. And, and, and what, does, what, what does God say? While he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And behold, a voice out of the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Listen to him. And, and, and not just in the, 
in the physical sense, but in the spiritual realm as well. We, we all have our ideas about how things are to go, how things are to be, how we are to live, how we are to worship what is best for us. We, we all have opinions. But what, what the Father says here in Matthew 17, what Jesus said in John 3, and in a sense what Solomon is pointing at in verse 12 of chapter 6 is, who knows but God? Who knows what is good for man but God? So listen to him. Submit to him as his creation. He's created you. He knows what is good for you. He knows what is best for you. Not just in this vain life, in the few days in which you live in this world and, and, and how you work and, and, and live and move and have your being, but also in a spiritual sense, what is best for you. We're to submit to him as his creation. And, it, and we waste our life here in this world when we don't submit to God as his creation. We don't submit to him when we don't fear him, when we don't obey him, when we don't trust him. And finally, when we don't rejoice in him. We, we, we don't rejoice in him. We look for fulfillment and hope and joy in everything but God. There's a few points in... Uh, you know, the, this book of Ecclesiastes where, where most of it, it seems as if you're walking either through a dark forest or, or um, under a dark sky and, and there's a few moments where the light shines and it opens up and, and, and one of those moments here at the end of um, chapter 5, we see Solomon writes, here is what I have seen to be good, which is beautiful. To eat, to drink, and see good in all one's labor, in which he labors under the sun during the few days of his life, which God has given him. For this is his portion. Furthermore, as for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth, he has also empowered him to eat from them and to take up his portion and be glad in his labor. This is the gift of God. This is a gift of God to enjoy life, to enjoy what he has given you, to find pleasure in all the simple things in life and to thank God for them, to enjoy God's gracious gifts, to acknowledge him as your creator, to submit to him as his creation. As we read this at the end of chapter 5, he says this is the gift of God to enjoy life. You know, that, that phrase, <clears throat> gift of God, it comes up and it's, there's not many places in the Bible where, the, where this phrase, gift of God, shows up. And in the places it does, it, it speaks of the gift of God in three categories. Three categories. First, we see that, that the first category here in Ecclesiastes, the gift of God speaking to um, what he has given us, given us here in this life, in the here and now. He also says in Ecclesiastes 3, in verse 12, I know that there is nothing better for them than to be glad and to do good in one's lifetime. Moreover, that every man who eats and drinks and sees good in all his labor, it is the gift of God. It's the gift of God to acknowledge his good gifts and to enjoy them. But there's the second category in which we see the gift of God is the spiritual sense. We see that in, in Jesus' response to, to the woman at the well, the, the Samaritan, when he says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. 
And she, in a sense, like many of these men in, in Ecclesiastes 6, is just looking for uh, all the physical things in this life to fulfill her. Just trying to get by, just trying to uh, make life a bit better. And, and Jesus is saying, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, he would have given you living water, something even greater than anything this world can offer you. Living water, eternal life. And, and we know that phrase that, you know, you just hear that, that term, gift of God, and immediately for most of us, we go to Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of yourselves. This is the gift of God. Salvation is a gift. That's the gift of God. But it's not just salvation. That is the main category in which we see this term gift of God. We see it first in Ecclesiastes and in, in all the, the blessings of this, this earthly life. We see it in salvation and in, in all the spiritual blessings that come through salvation. But we also see it in 2 Timothy 1 in which Paul tells Timothy, For this reason I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. The, the spiritual giftings that we receive through the Holy Spirit. We see these gifts, the, the earthly gifts, the spiritual gifts, the gift of spiritual uh, abilities or uh, giftings to minister. All of life is a gift. Every, every good thing, as James says, every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. Every good thing in life comes from God, and, and that's how we keep from wasting our life is to submit to God, to recognize life as a gift, everything in life that comes as a gift from God and, and primarily our own salvation, our redemption from this sin-cursed world and from our own sin is a gift of God. And we are to live our lives as a gift, enjoying God's gracious gifts, acknowledging God as our creator and submitting to him as his creation and, and wherever he would take us, whatever he would have us do, when we acknowledge God, we live a life that is pleasing to Him and life becomes a gift and it's not a drudgery. Heavenly Father, help us to live this life as a gift. Help us to recognize Your good and perfect gifts and, and all the blessings of this world of food, shelter, and clothing, of all the circumstances of, of recognizing Your providence and leading us through all the circumstances, the trials, the challenges, the blessings in our salvation, our redemption, that we who were once dead in our trespass, uh, trespasses and sins have been made alive through Christ Jesus. We've been given this uh, eternal gift of, of eternal life. It's, it's unchanging and, and imperishable, kept in heaven for us. Lord, help us to see your good and gracious gifts in this life and to live in a, such a way which is pleasing to you and not to complain or, or be like, like the world and be cynical or... Um, uh, frustrated or angry 
but to be salt and light in the midst of a dark and decaying world. Lord, we thank you for your gracious gifts. Please guide us through this week. Help us to acknowledge each and every gift and to live lives which are pleasing to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.